So this is the uh, fifth and the next to last of these morning uh, presentations. I'd like to start with a, a couple of quotes that we find uh, again in the Sanyutta Nikaya in the in the last chapter which deals with the four tasks, truths, uh, someone suggested observations. But let's just call them the four. And the four are dukkha, suffering, samudaya, arising, niroda, ceasing, and maga, path. This is what the Buddha says about them. He says, this is suffering, this is the arising, this is the ceasing, this is the path. In each, there are innumerable nuances, innumerable details, innumerable implications. Now this to me suggests very strongly that what is being described in this process of, of fully knowing dukkha, our situation, life, letting go of the craving, grasping that arises, experiencing the, the stopping of that craving, and embarking on a way of life, is something that's not reducible just to being proficient in certain, let's say, meditational techniques. We're talking here of a framework or a paradigm for a way of life that has innumerable implications, details, nuances. And this, I feel, is in a sense the, the challenge for each generation, perhaps for each individual, to somehow work out. It's not as though we can look up in a Buddhist book or what all these implications are. The implications are borne out through our putting these values and practices um, into action. Again, just to uh, make it clear that although we start with dukkha, this does not mean that the process is somehow pessimistic and morbid. In fact, we find um, a passage that directly uh, contradicts that, where the Buddha himself says, I do not say that the breakthrough to the four is accompanied by suffering or displeasure. It is accompanied only by happiness and joy. Now, what that suggests to me, in terms of how I would read the nuance or the implication of that text, is that it doesn't mean that once we embark on this process that we always have a big smile on our face and we feel terribly happy. I, I would hope that were the case, but I feel one must be realistic enough to recognize that it's not talking about some kind of um, constant well-being in that way. But rather, I feel, it's about uh, finding a framework for one's life in which one feels that one is flourishing, 
one feels that one's life is somehow um, in a way freed itself from the frustrations and the blocks and the limitations that hold us back and has somehow entered into um, uh, a way of being in which we feel that our energies are released. That's how we might phrase it. Uh, and I think we notice that, say, even in a, a session of meditation. There are meditations in which we feel somehow we're not getting anywhere. We feel stuck. Uh, we feel that we're just going round and round and round with some silly idea in our heads. And then, for no apparent reason, the next session, we feel calm, we feel still, we feel focused, and characteristically, we feel as though we enter into a kind of flow. Now, we'll talk about this again tomorrow, but the Buddha calls the experience entering a stream, which again is a very powerful metaphor for life, a flowing of water. But we must be careful, I think, not to uh, look at this in a one-dimensional way. Um, and I feel that this is already flagged um, by the starting point of embracing dukkha. That it would be overly simplistic to say that by embracing dukkha we become constantly aware of, of the dark side of life. And we feel somehow slightly gloomy and serious. But on the other hand, it would be equally one-dimensional to say that it's all about being happy all the time. What I feel experience shows us when we embark on such a practice is that life is ambiguous, life is conflicted, life is tragic. And that's uh, inseparable from life being joyous and flowing and rich. Uh, we tend to want to split our life in two. We want one bit, we don't want the other bit. But I feel that in doing so we turn what we might call a three-dimensional experience into a two-dimensional experience or a one-dimensional experience. Now religions I think generally have some difficulty um, in accommodating the, the conflicted nature of experience. Because clearly if your ideal is the Buddha who's enlightened and omniscient and we seek to achieve that state ourselves, or in the sense of Christianity, the, the, the Christ likewise is depicted as divine, as participating in the Godhead. Um, that uh, tendency uh, towards a kind of perfection, a kind of idealization, um, doesn't sit comfortably with the actual experience of life being conflicted. Now, you, I'm going to give a couple of quotes that, in a way, sh uh, show us how um, the conflicted nature of experience is actually at the very heart of this practice itself. The first is actually from St. Paul in the letter to the Romans. He says, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do do. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. 
For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. And this I keep on doing. <laughs> now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. <laughs> now this is powerful stuff now we probably balk at the word sin and perhaps it's not a word that's really very useful for us uh, perhaps today in, in this sort of practice but we do have to acknowledge that if we, could un if we understand what Paul is saying there and I got the impression we do <laughs> <laughs> then we have to somehow take account of this. That, um, you know, we may have the best intentions, uh, a very sincere motivation, but we end up doing the opposite. Now, we get almost identical passage in Shantideva. Shantideva was an 8th century Indian uh, Buddhist monk, uh, famous for his work, The Bodhisattva Charya Avatara, A Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life. And this is what he says. Although wishing to be rid of misery, I run towards misery itself. Although wishing to have happiness, like an enemy, I ignorantly destroy it. It's exactly the same conflict, exactly the same tension. Now, how is this articulated in, in the Pali Canon? Um, again, I don't find passages that are quite as, as, uh, as explicit as we find in Paul or we find in Shantideva. But what we do find, though, is a powerful uh, thread of mythological language concerning uh, the figure called Mara. And that's what I want to look at today, Mara. Now Mara literally means the killer. It's the word is connected to the Sanskrit word murtu for death. And Mara is basically whatever in, blocks our path. So if we think of the process of the four as a path, as an eightfold path, Mara is what gets in the way. And in some texts, there's a passage in the Diga Nikaya where um, the Buddha says, whenever a person grasps or, or clings, Mara stands beside him. In other words, Mara is, is um, equivalent to that which um, is called in what we've looked at so far, is craving. Mara is what arises. Mara is what somehow blocks or, or stops or obstructs the flow of this path. Now, when I did some research into Mara, there's a whole sequence of texts. Again, not surprisingly, we find a whole chapter in the Sangyutta Nikaya, the Connected Discourses, um, which is called the Mara Sangyutta. The, the, there's about 33 discourses uh, recounting dialogues between the Buddha and Mara. And Mara appears actually right through the canon. And yet it's uh, an element, 
or a feature of the uh, tradition that's actually not much uh, presented. I think it's a very, very rich scene. And the reason I feel it's so rich is because it, um, in a way, humanizes the Buddha. What do I mean by that? The standard story we have about the Buddha's awakening is that once he um, achieved awakening, he had overcome Mara. And in fact, there's that famous image in Buddhist iconography where you have the Buddha seated on the throne beneath the Bodhi tree, and he has one hand, the right hand, touching the earth, calling the earth as his witness. And surrounding him is a halo of demons who are firing arrows at him and threatening him with spears and axes and so on. And yet the Buddha remains completely serene. And that is sometimes called uh, the, 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 the Mara Vijaya Mudra, the, the gesture of overcoming Mara. So that on the awakening, on becoming a Buddha, Mara is vanquished. Now, what's puzzling is that when you read the discourses uh, that recount the um, meetings between the Buddha and Mara, almost all of them occur after the awakening. In fact, Mara continues appearing to the Buddha right up until shortly before his death. It's a common occurrence. The Buddha is giving a talk and Mara comes along <laughs> and starts talking to him. And then there ensues a dialogue of some kind and I'm going to give a couple of examples. Um, at the end of which, the Buddha sees what's going on, understands what's happening, and says, I know you, Mara. And Mara then vanishes. But this doesn't alter the fact that um, the Buddha, even after the awakening, is still working and dealing with what is called Mara. And if Mara is craving, then it appears that the Buddha too still experience some degree of craving, maybe anger. We don't know. We can't get into the Buddha's mind. And tradition has tried to gloss over, it seems, any suggestion that the Buddha is anything less than perfect. There are, however, some instances where we get a glimpse of the humanity of the uh, figure of Gautama. A very good example is um, a story that's found in the Pali Canon, which is usually called the Quarrel at Kosambi. Kosambi was a city to the far west of the Buddha's teaching uh, territory. It's on the Ganges, beyond the modern city of Ahlalabad. And um, there was an occasion where the monks got into one of these typical disputes, very petty, that blew up into a huge schism. It had to do with the way in which one monk had not properly um, put, uh, not properly used the bowl or the, the jug that is used after you go to the toilet. Uh, he did something wrong, I can't remember the detail, he didn't put it in the right place or something. And um, this then blew up into a big uh, schism within the community. They couldn't agree on how to, whether the monk had broken the rule or not broken the rule and blah, blah, blah. 
very human. And then, but fortunately, the Buddha comes along. He's traveling through that part of the world. He pops into this monastery at Kosambi, and they all think, oh, great, now he's going to sort the thing out. <laughs> but he can't. Uh, he cannot reconcile the different factions in the monastery. And you then have this curious episode where it says that the Buddha, uh, having taken his morning meal, folded up his robe, took his bowl, cleaned his cell, and without telling anybody, went off away from the monastery down the road towards Parileya. And he thought, or he, you have him then saying to himself, I feel hemmed in by the monks, hemmed in by the lay followers. Um, I'm going to go off and get some peace of mind. And so he goes into this forest and he sits by a root of a sal tree. And as he's sitting there, and now we get into myth language, a bull elephant comes along and sits next to him. And then they start having a chat. And, um, and the bull elephant says, well, what are you doing here? And the Buddha says, well, I feel hemmed in by the monks, hemmed in by the lay people. And the bull elephant says, I know what you mean. <laughs> he says, I feel hemmed in by the female elephants, hemmed in by the calf elephants. I had to get away. <laughs> Now, of course, we probably won't take that little episode literally, but nonetheless, it, it points to, it's one of the few moments in the canon where the Buddha can't achieve what he wants to achieve. And he basically feels hemmed in. Now, this is interesting, because that's exactly how he describes Mara. Mara is also called Antaka, the one who creates limits we saw Anta yesterday as dead end, the two dead ends that the path seeks to avoid. And here we find the idea that Antakamara is what kind of hems you in, sort of ties you down. And we have the Buddha himself being hemmed in. And in fact, when we try to look more carefully at the actual uh, historical, well, perhaps historical um, events that occurred within the Buddha's life, in his society, with his family, with the political forces of his day, with the schisms in the community. Again, we have this constant sense that the Buddha's not someone who's above it all, but actually is deeply embedded in conflicted relationships. And um, I have the very strong sense that towards the end of his life, when his world is literally falling apart, <coughs> His patrons have been killed or have died. His, um, his, his homeland is being invaded by the armies of Corsola. I find it difficult to think that he would have had much optimism as to the future of his teaching. So again, another example of being hemmed in, being somehow uh, constrained by forces out of his control. So... Again, this is an example um, of how Mara cannot be just understood as um, certain kleshas, certain negative states of mind. 
but Mara is actually embedded into the organism itself, is embedded in the very structure of human society itself. It's perhaps embedded in the actual physics of the world. That um, our bodies, our minds, our societies um, are, in a sense, limit situations, as some modern philosophers might say. And that's just a given. So to overcome these things, to overcome Mara, um, is not about, obviously, getting rid of all that. But rather learning to be with it in another way. Now, if we think of Mara, as the word literally suggests, as a kind of death, Mara is, in fact, identified with Yama, the um, Indian lord of death, in other words, physical death. I mean, that's, in a way, the, the, the ultimate limit condition, I mean, dropping dead. At that point, anything that you aspire to achieve in your life has basically stopped. But also, this uh, death needs to be understood, I think, as a kind of inner death, and maybe a spiritual death. Um, in other words, a feeling that we're not really fully alive. And this, of course, can happen when you're actually involved and committed to practicing the Dharma. You may, may, may be even quite good at it. And you have a good meditation practice, you have a nice community. But you find there'll be moments or periods of greater or shorter length uh, in which you feel kind of... Um, everything is going into just routine or rote, that the practice kind of sort of loses its steam, its energy, becomes flat. And this is, of course, also known very much by people who work in, in the arts, for example, who talk about writer's block or whatever the equivalent might be in other disciplines. These periods in our lives when suddenly we kind of hit a wall and nothing appears to be moving anymore. Now, if we think of Mara as, as, as just a, a, a sort of a, a mythological or symbolic way of speaking about such things, then that leads us to the suggestion that the image of the Buddha is actually the counter-image to Mara. In other words, an, Im an image of living fully, an image of life um, in flow, as it were. But such a life in flow is not one that has somehow deleted whatever might inhibit that flow, but is one that has learnt somehow to work with those so-called obstructions or obstacles or hindrances. So in a way I feel that Mara and Buddha go hand in hand. That the idealization of the Buddha, which has happened, of course, in most traditions, including Theravada Buddhism, the Buddha has become impossibly perfect, omniscient, all-compassionate, all-wise. Um, in, in the Tibetan tradition, uh, the Buddha does, doesn't even have a conceptual thought. Uh, there's absolutely nothing lim limited about the Buddha. And they can perform all these miracles and it has a consciousness that expands through the universe. It's basically become God. 
But this is, I think, uh, this tendency in religion towards creating images of perfection, which can be very inspiring, but they, they, in a sense, separate and distance what we're seeking to achieve um, to such a degree that they become unattainable. So there's a process of alienation that seems to go hand in hand with this move or any move towards perfection. I think another way that we can look at this, and this goes back to a question that came up yesterday afternoon, is that we have to rethink what we mean by craving. There's a very common pericope or or stock text uh, in the Pali Canon where the Arhant is described as one in whom greed and hatred and delusion (coughs) have been cut off like a palm stump, never to arise again. A palm tree being a tree that once you cut it down it won't grow again. Now that's, again, a very common motif, but it's somehow at odds with the discourse around Mara. Um, What Mara suggests is that uh, craving, let's say, is something that is actually built into the organism itself. And this, I feel, is much closer to how we would understand the emergence and the development of these uh, instincts and drives in terms of modern biology. Craving isn't just a sort of free-floating mental act, but actually it probably has its roots in our reptilian brain. It's the basic urge for survival. It's what's, as it were, driven our ancestors, perhaps since the times of the primeval swamp, to survive and pass on their genes and end up with us. And those forces, getting what we want, getting rid of what we don't want, and having a very um, committed and firm sense of, of me and mine, I don't think it's accidental that they happen to be the things that the Buddha is trying to somehow come to terms with. Nowadays, we'd understand that as the, as, as the evolutionary drives. And I don't think any amount of meditation or insight into shunyata is going, to re, is, is going to eliminate that. So the passages concerning Mara, I feel, allow us to, as it were, embrace the, that reality of our experience uh, and, and acknowledge that um, the practice we're involved in is not about becoming perfect, but it's about um, uh, embracing and understanding our condition and learning to live with it, respond to it, in a a radically different way. Another way we might look at this is to think of Mara as the Buddha's shadow. And in fact, although that's a very, nowadays, a popular psychological idea, that started with Jung, we actually find a text in uh, an early Mahayana writing where when the Buddha is leaving the palace in the renunciation, Mara observes him leaving and says, I will follow him like a shadow follows his body. Which is very interesting. Uh, In other words, Mara is always there. 
is always tailing the Buddha. And this again, I think, shows the, um, the fact that although the tradition has sort of, sort of split Mara off from the Buddha and created two, as it were, personalities, in fact, it's a way of describing that which the tradition finds difficult to accept, namely the fact that the Buddha too is embedded in this world, in this body, in this organism, uh, in this life. I mean, I like the, the language about, uh, the, the mythological language, because it's somehow more multidimensional and complex. Buddhism tends to prefer, as you've probably noticed, a rather uh, precise, analytical, uh, psychological language that, that is very helpful, but it doesn't always capture the complexity of our humanity. The, 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 the mythological language um, is in a way able to capture that amb ambiguity and complexity, I think, in a much more vital way, without seeking to define it. As the figure of Mara um, uh, was understood uh, quite early on in the early traditions and then as it found its way into um, Tibet and China, um, the figure of Mara as a kind of tricksterish uh, personification of something is replaced by the doctrine of the four Maras. In fact, when I studied this as a Tibetan monk, Mara as a, as a personification, as a trickster, uh, has gone. And instead we have Klesha Mara, Kanda Mara, Yama Mara and Devaputra Mara. In other words, the Mara who is the Kleshas, the negative mental states, the Mara who is the Kandas, in other words, what we mean, the bundles, are also considered to be Mara, in other words, the limit condition. Mara as death, Yama Mara, and Devaputra Mara, the Mara who is the offspring of a god, literally. And that is the acknowledgement of Mara as a kind of tricksterish figure. But that has been, again, sort of split off from the other aspects of Mara. Nowhere in the um, canon do you find the doctrine of the four Maras. You can see how that emerged, but in the canon, in the suttas, Mara is always this single figure. I'm going to give uh, some examples now from the text as to how uh, Mara is presented. The earliest um, passage that concerns Mara is in a text in the Sutta Nipata, which is considered to be one of the earliest layers of the Pali Canon. Um, it's about 900 verses. Um, it's available in a number of English translations. And there's a chapter called The Striving, which is... Um, which is an account of the Buddha's renunciation. Now what's interesting here is that when Mara first appears in this text, um, he doesn't appear as um, a figure called Mara, but as a figure called Namuchi, N-A-M-U-C-I, 
It says the Buddha was seated by the Nirinjara river intent on attaining awakening and then Namuchi approached him. Now who the hell is Namuchi? Namuchi is a, a, a god from the Vedic times. Um, the god or the demon really who prevents the falling of the monsoon. In other words, he's the drought demon. And um, in the myth, Indra, the king of the gods, has to strike Namuchi with his vajra, and then Namuchi releases the rain. Now, Mara is then equated with this image of a god, a demon, who um, holds back water holds back the water in this case that is crucial to the survival of people on the Gangetic Plain. So again, it's very much an image of death, but it's also an image of, 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 of restriction, of holding something back, of not releasing water so that it can flow, so that it can give life. But now at the end of this text, it's a short text, it's only about, it's about 40 or 50 verses. You have a very curious uh, passage, which I'll read out. Now here you have Namuchi slash Mara uh, talking um, to himself, I guess. He says, For seven years I have followed the teacher, the Bhagwan, the Buddha, step by step. And I've not obtained an opportunity against this fully awakened one who possesses mindfulness. A bird circled a stone which looked like fat, or a, a, a blob of fat on the ground, thinking, perhaps I'll find something soft here, perhaps there might be something sweet, but not finding anything to eat the bird flew away from there. Like a crow attacking a rock and becoming despondent, in attacking Gautama, I have become despondent and will now go away. Uh, it's quite typical in the passages that deal with Mara that we suddenly find ourselves in a much richer um, imaginative kind of language using very, very I, I find very, very powerful uh, symbolism, symbolic imagery. Now what's going on here? First of all Mara recognizes that he's been following the Buddha for an awful long time which again suggests was seven years he said which again suggests that, again, he, he wasn't wiped out on the Enlightenment. He's still around. But he hasn't obtained any opportunity to, um, in a sense, to sort of gain any kind of hold in the Buddha's awakened mind. And he compares himself to a crow who, circling around over the ground, and he spots a piece of something that looks to him like a morsel of food. So the crow dives down to the food only to discover when he starts tapping it with his beak that it's not food at all. It's actually a rock. 
and the beak can't get any nourishment from such a thing. So once the bird realizes that, he flies off. And then Mara compares himself to the crow attacking a rock. In other words, the Buddha is compared to a rock that Mara's beak cannot get into. And this then causes Mara to be despondent and he goes away. Now this is, I think, a very um, a different image of, uh, of freedom or liberation than we find in the metaphor of cutting something off like a palm stump never to arise again. In other words, in that way of thinking, which is the dominant way in, in Theravada Buddhism, in the canon, um, you become free from greed and hatred and these things by literally destroying them. Now, as we understand such instincts and emotions now, that would be a bit like having a lobotomy, actually sort of cutting off something out of the brain or out of the nervous system, which is not only a very violent image, uh, but also entirely unrealistic. So here we have a very different uh, way of, 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 of imaging what this freedom is. It's not a freedom that's arrived at by destroying something. It's a freedom that's arrived at by not making yourself uh, susceptible to something. And I think perhaps the best way to illustrate this is by considering what we try to do in the practice of meditation. We're sitting there watching the breath. Okay, everything's going hunky-dory. And then the next thing you know, some worry, let's say, uh, surges up in the mind. This is a bit like the crow, sort of starts flying around. And the crow sees your mind and thinks, wow, food. <laughs> and so the worry sort of hones in and uh, usually finds, you know, plenty to eat. <laughs> And actually sort of set, set, settles down and has a really good feed. <laughs> now, but there are moments when um, if we're sufficiently mindful, it's interesting that mindfulness is here suggested as, as, as the key. If we're sufficiently mindful, we can see the crow coming in. We can see it circling around trying to land. But as long as we're present and attentive, there's nowhere for it to gain a toehold. And so what happens is that we just observe the, the, the worry, and it circles around a bit, it sort of does its thing, but then because it doesn't get a place to hook into, it just follows its own nature and, and disappears. In other words, it's impermanent and it will change and it will go. Now you find exactly the same uh, imagery in Shantideva. Uh, if, you, if you're familiar with this uh, text, uh, the guide to the Bodhisattva's way of life, read chapter 5, and Shantideva says exactly the same thing. He, he, he says the, the kileshas, or the, let's say the mental defilements, um, are like uh, bandits 
trying to break into the house of your mind. But they can only do that when the guardian of mindfulness um, falls asleep at the gateway of the senses. So it thinks of the mind as like a sort of a, a space of which there are several doors, the senses, and my, the job of mindfulness is to guard the gateways of the senses. So my, mindfulness is constantly on the lookout. As soon as mindfulness drops or declines or falls asleep, then the bandits will say, right, in we go. Here he is, bachelor again, let's get him. <laughs> and in they come, you see. And the next thing you know is you're having you know, a feast of worry. And there's a period often when you're actually not conscious. It's that moment at which you lose consciousness or awareness. That point. And I think the imagery of bandits waiting for an opportunity is the expression Shantideva uses. And Shantideva's uh, image of how to deal with that, he says, is to remain like a log, a piece of wood. He says whenever anger arises or jealousy or egoism or hatred, Shing Shindu Newaraja in Tibetan, remain like a log. In other words, just remain like a piece of wood. Don't react, don't, don't reject it, don't express it. In other words, just let it happen without getting averse to it, without getting drawn to it, and it will just follow its own nature as a mental process and it will just pass away. It will arise and it will cease. So this is very much the, uh, an image of, um, of freedom, of liberation, of awareness, of awakening, that hasn't got anything to do with destroying something. Uh, the same theme is picked up in the Vajrayana. The idea that the Kileshas are just energies that can be transformed into enlightenment. Or in Dzogchen, you have the idea that the Kileshas are what they call Rang Drulwa, self-liberating. If you just leave them alone, they'll go away. Now again, this is a very nice idea, and it even sounds perhaps convincing, but in practice it's actually very, it's bloody difficult. Uh, We're working with something that's moving very fast, something that's uh, often very powerful, quite overwhelming, and something that in some cases almost feels irresistible. So clearly it's not um, a, a sort of simple trick to sort of work with these things, but it's giving us an Im- a range of imagery that um, I feel offers a much more realistic account of how we can, um, uh, in a way, cultivate mindfulness as a means of uh, living with Mara rather than seeking to vanquish or destroy Mara. Because this stuff is part of our own organism. It's not good, it's not bad, it's just the stuff of life, really. And here's another passage. This is from one of the texts in the Sanyutta, the Connected Discourses of the Buddha. And it takes place at Savati. 
Now on that occasion, the teacher was instructing the monks with a Dharma talk concerning Nibbana. Then it occurred to Mara, the ascetic Gautama is instructing the monks. Let me approach him in order to confound him. Then Mara manifested himself in the form of a farmer, carrying a large plough on his shoulder, holding a long goad stick, his hair dishevelled, wearing hempen garments, his feet smeared with mud. He approached the Buddha and said, Maybe you've seen my oxen. <laughs> and the Buddha replies, What are oxen to you, Mara? And Mara replies, the eye, E-Y-E, the eye is mine, ascetic. Colours and shapes are mine, ascetic. The contact between eye and shapes is mine, ascetic. And the consciousness of sight is mine, ascetic. The ear is mine, sounds are mine. Contact between the two is mine. Consciousness of sound is mine. And he goes right through all of the other senses, which, as we'll remember now, is what the Buddha calls everything, the all, the totality of life. Since all these things are mine, ascetic, where can you go to escape from me? And this is the... Um, Buddha's response. He says, but Mara, where there is no eye, no sight, no contact, no eye consciousness, where there is no ear, no sound, no contact, no ear consciousness, where there is no nose, no smell, no tongue, no taste, no body, no touch, no mind, no thought, there's no place for you there, Mara. Now this, of course, reminds us perhaps of the Heart Sutra. You know, no eye, no ear, no nose. And in other words, if, um, if we can come to somehow experience what's going on from the perspective of not-self, then we are, as it were, not allowing any place for Mara to take hold. Now, this, again, it's, it's a little, it's, I, I think this is a very profound passage uh, because it, it brings us right back to what we've been talking about. In other words, fully knowing dukkha, life, experience. The fully, as we already saw, has to do with recognizing that none of this stuff is mine. This is stuff that just happens. And if we look into that, I think, even more deeply, and again, you find this played out in, in some of the philosophy of emptiness, you realize that whatever is occurring is occurring not as something that exists in and of itself, but is something that has emerged out of a complex matrix of circumstances and conditions, that whatever is occurring is somehow not enclosed or contained uh, as a thing. 
The world is not constructed of lots of discrete, separate bits and pieces. And that's how uh, language, particularly, um, presents our experience to us. We have the sense that I'm a kind of discrete mo monad or bit with nice clean-cut borders that what I see, what I hear, what I smell, what I taste, other people, other things, other objects, other animals and so forth, all of them are somehow neatly contained, uh, isolate entities that correspond to the words that describe them. So in some senses, this is the, um, uh, the trap of language um, uh, and, and perception, uh, differentiation, that we take that differentiation literally. Of course, it's very useful. We need to function in a world in which we can recognize this from that. But once we reify it, make it into a thing, we somehow cut it out of the context or the fabric of which it is a part. And once we've made that separation, we've created something on which Mara can latch. Once you let go of that uh, separate sense, that reified thing, and you realize that what all is that is occurring is mysteriously emerging out of these relationships, is mysteriously something that's not divisible by thought or words or language. In a way, that um, prevents craving, hatred, egoism, jealousy from having something to hold on to. I think that's what this passage is pointing to. It's a, I think it's a, 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 a precursor of what later becomes developed by Nagarjuna and others into the philosophy of, of the middle way, the philosophy of emptiness. And the text actually concludes with two um, verses, which, which I think state this rather more clearly. Um, this is Mara speaking. That of which they say, it's mine, and those who speak in terms of mine... If your mind exists among these, you won't escape me, ascetic. Ascetic is the way he refers to the Buddha. In other words, a, a, a world and an experience that is passed up into those me-mine distinctions is one in which Mara has sway. And then the Buddha replies in another verse, that which we speak of as not mine, how, that, sorry, that which they speak of is not mine. I'm not one of those who speak of mine. You should know thus, O evil one, even my path you will not see. In other words, I don't even leave a trace. There's nothing uh, in what I'm experiencing here that will be something you can identify and somehow reify and then catch on to. And then the text concludes Mara disappeared on the spot. In other words, once one has somehow uh, come to experience one's life being in the world and again, that's why I like Heidegger's hyphens. 
being hyphen in hyphen the hyphen world. I think he's trying to suggest that this is an, an unbroken continuum. Although we have to use words, words actually are part of the problem. So we try and invent a way of somehow, dis, some, somehow challenging that. Now I think what all of this points to um, is that Buddha and Mara certainly don't stand for some external figures, the, the historical Buddha and some sort of demon or spirit, which is probably how traditional Buddhists would have actually understood these passages as, as almost literally true. But this is a symbolic language that's really trying to tell us something about our own experience. And what it points to, I feel, is that in any given moment, we can, let's just for the sake of convenience say when we're sitting in meditation, we have the possibility of being Buddha-like or Mara-like. We might even say we have both a Buddha nature and a Mara nature. And they're not two separate things. We're not into sort of a Manichaean dualism here, where there are two conflicting forces at work. But rather, Buddha and Mara are just different modalities of the same thing. Different ways in which this organism can configure itself. It's the same stuff. It's organized in a different way. It's a bit like that image in Gestalt psychology where you can see two vases, it, it's a vase and then if you just do your perception thing you can see two faces or two profiles of faces and Buddha and Mara are like that it's the same, exact, exactly the same image but you can look at it in two very different ways now if we extend that three dimensionally into our experience of the khandhas of the bundles or Nama Rupa Vijnana, we can either see it as lots of discrete elements somehow apart from each other, or we can see it as one interconnected, interpenetrating, interfusing experience. Uh, the only metaphor that I found that suggests that in a three dimensional way um, is the image of a valve. You know, a valve, like on a bicycle pump, on, on a bicycle wheel. You can, a, a valve can be open or a valve can be closed. It can, you can blow through it or it becomes shut and nothing can go through it anymore. Perhaps the open valve is the Buddha and the closed valve is Mara. That these are ways of talking about how we can be open or closed. We can be um, somehow limited or unlimited. That we can be open to possibilities or we can be closed to possibilities. How we can be, as it were, free to respond or how we find ourselves fixed in a position from which all we can do is react. And that's how I would understand it. And I think the, the, the process of the four is describing an open valve uh, way of living, a way in which we're not limited or hindered or blocked 
by the arising of craving that just freezes everything. You see, I think the problem with craving, tanha, is not, as traditional Buddhism insists, because it's the origin of suffering, or dukkha. But the real problem with craving is that it blocks us from entering the path. Uh, it, it's a hindrance, it freezes us, it closes us down, it gets us going round and round and round and round in circles, repetitively, rather than allowing us to, as it were, experience a moment of stillness and stopping in which we can then open up into another way of seeing and thinking and speaking and acting and so on. And that's what we're going to look at tomorrow. So thank you very much. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.